Part 2 Fourths, Forecasting TAI with Biological Anchors by IAEA Kotra. How Training Data Requirements Scale with Parameter Count. Welcome to the Nonlinear Library, where we use text-to-speech software to convert the best writing from the rationalist and IA communities into audio. This is Part 2 of Forecasting TAI with Biological Anchors, published by IAEA Kotra. Part 2 How Training Data Requirements Scale with Parameter Count. This report emerged from discussions with our technical advisors Dario Amade and Paul Cristiano. However, it should not be treated as representative of either of their views, the project eventually broadened considerably, and my conclusions are my own. This is a work in progress and does not represent Open Philanthropy's institutional view. We are making it public to make it easier to gather feedback, to help inform others thinking in the effective altruism community, and to allow for follow-on work outside of Open Phil. However, we may edit it substantially in the future as we gather feedback from a broader audience and investigate open questions. Accordingly we have not done an official publication or blog post, and would prefer for now that people not share it widely in a low bandwidth way, for example just posting key graphics on Facebook or Twitter. This report has been split into four Google Docs in order to load faster. This is part two, the first part is here, the third part is here, and the fourth part is here. Additional materials, collected in this folder. Quantitative model the Python notebook biological anchor hypotheses for 2020 training computation requirements, a template spreadsheet when required computation may be affordable, and my best guess, conservative, and aggressive forecasts. Supplemental materials a document containing various appendices, a folder of figures for the report, the spreadsheet extrapolations of data and compute to train models, and the Python notebook compute price trends, which draws on data in this folder. In part 1, I provided an overview of the framework and estimates, provided definitions for key abstractions used in the model, and generated an estimate for the number of flop, sub-second of a transformative model. In part 2, I will provide an overview of the evidence we can use to think about training data requirements for a transformative model, by generating a scaling law relating the number of parameters that characterizes a model to the number of data points required to train it. The scaling law derived in this part will be used in part 3 to estimate 2020 training computation requirements for the genome anchor hypothesis and the neural network hypotheses. Specifically, the amount of computation required to train a transformative model for each of those hypotheses will be estimated as train flop equals f flop sub second x t sub second of training. I generated in probability distribution over f the flop sub second of a transformative model in part 1 here. My median estimate is approximately 1e16 flop, sub-second. Here, I will focus on how to extrapolate t, the number of subjective seconds of data that a model must be trained on, as a function of the parameter count p of a transformative model, the larger the parameter count, the more data is needed to train the model. The neural network hypotheses and genome anchor hypothesis estimate p differently. This will be covered in part 3. In the rest of part 2, I will. Explain why machine learning theory would predict that data requirements tend to scale linearly with parameter count, more. Examine two papers which ran controlled experiments attempting to elicit scaling laws relating dataset size and model parameter count, both of which conclude that dataset size d scales can be described as a power law function of parameter count p, i.e. dkp, with the more relevant result predicting that this scaling is sublinear, more. Introduce the concept of a horizon length to operationalize what one data point means for different ML problems, more. Present some estimates of the number of data points various recent RL models were trained on, which is consistent with a linear or slightly sublinear scaling, more. Summarize my thinking on how data requirements scale with parameter count, 
expressed as a power law function with a probability distribution over the exponent and constant factor k, more. How sample complexity scales in ML theory. Machine learning is essentially search over programs. We set up a search space containing a large set of candidate computer programs, usually parametrized by some number of numerical parameters, and use an optimization algorithm to select a program from that space which performs well according to a certain loss function. Machine learning theory suggests that the amount of data required to find a model that is close to optimal is a linear function of parameter count and the variance of the loss function. In this section, I provide a more precise description of how we should expect data requirements to scale from a theoretical perspective. I'll first define sample complexity and explain theoretical results that bound the sample complexity of a learning task under certain conditions, more. I'll discuss the extent to which the conditions required for these theoretical sample complexity bounds would obtain in real-world machine learning problems, more. I'll briefly address how these bounds may apply to other optimization algorithms besides stochastic gradient descent, the most commonly used algorithm in modern ML, more. Later in this document, I will cover empirical evidence about training data requirements for modern ML models from both controlled experiments and observational data. Definition of sample complexity and theoretical bounds. I first learned the information in this section from the textbook Understanding Machine Learning from Theory to Algorithms, by Shalev Schwartz and Ben David, it is standard and can be found in many other sources. Consider a finite search space over candidate programs, denoted as H, which stands for hypothesis space. For any loss function L and data distribution D, there is at least one program H H such that H achieves the lowest loss on data distributed according to D of any program in H written in mathematical notation this looks like. H H H H Ed D L H D Ed D L H D where Ed D F D denotes the expected value of the expression F D if the variable D is distributed according to the distribution D. An optimization algorithm draws samples of data D1, D2, D3, from the distribution D, for example, images from a dataset of images, and attempts to select a candidate program that has high average performance on that finite sample, in the hope that it would also have high average performance on the full distribution. The goal is to select a candidate program H that we are confident will achieve a loss that is close to the loss that H achieves. Specifically, we would like the probability that at DLH, D, at DLH, D, plus to be 1 dash, where greater than 0 and greater than 0 are small constants that we choose. The sample complexity is defined as the number of data points that our optimization algorithm needs such that with probability at least 1 dash, the expected loss of the model returned by the optimization algorithm on the full data distribution, at DLH, D, will be at most larger than the expected loss of the best model in the hypothesis space on the full distribution, at DLH, D. When certain learnability conditions apply, it is possible to calculate an upper bound on sample complexity for a certain optimization algorithm given only the size of the hypothesis space H, the loss function L, the desired accuracy, and the desired confidence level, while making only relatively weak assumptions about the data distribution D I cover two sample complexity bounds and their relevant conditions below the empirical risk minimization bound and the stochastic gradient descent bound. Empirical risk minimization bound. This sample complexity bound holds under the following conditions. There are a finite number of candidate programs in H. This condition is obtained for physically instantiated machine learning models because they are characterized by a finite number of parameters that have a finite precision. For example, if a neural network has 1 million parameters stored as 32-bit precision floating point numbers, then each parameter can then take on 232 possible values, meaning that there are 232 1,000,000 possible settings of the parameters overall, 
a huge but finite quantity. More generally, a model parametrized by p-values each with a precision of b bits has size vertical bar h vertical bar equals 2bp. The loss function L is bounded, with a maximum at L max and a minimum at zero. The data distribution D is unchanging, and each data point D is drawn independently at random from D, i.e., they are independent and identically distributed, iid, random variables. The optimization algorithm implements the empirical risk minimization, ERM, rule given a sample S equals, D1, D2, D3, Dn, where D are iid, it returns the hypothesis H which achieved the lowest average loss on the sample S, this is called the empirical loss or empirical risk. We could clearly implement the ERM rule using exhaustive search, i.e. computing the empirical loss of every model HH on the sample S. For some learning problems it is possible to write a much more efficient optimization algorithm which finds the hypothesis that minimizes empirical risk. The law of large numbers states that in the limit of infinite data, the empirical loss of every model HH on the sample will converge to the theoretical mean almost surely. HH, N1E equals 1 NLH, D equals DLH, D with probability 1. Once the number of samples n is large enough that all of the individual empirical losses 1 e equals 1 nlh, d, associated with each hypothesis hh are very close to their respective expectations ed dlh, d, with very high probability, then the hypothesis h that minimizes empirical risk will have a true loss very close to the best hypothesis h with high probability. Further assumptions about the probability distributions are required to estimate how quickly this convergence will occur. There are a number of inequalities in probability theory that upper bound the probability that a sample mean estimated from independent samples of a random variable x deviates from the true mean ex, by more than some small given certain assumptions about the properties of x. The proof of the E or M sample complexity bound leans on one of these inequalities, Hoefting's inequality, which makes the assumption that the probability distribution over the loss is bounded on both ends. Because the loss function L is bounded, each of the random variables LH, D, DD are also bounded, and Hoefding's inequality can be applied to bound the rate at which each of them will converge to their respective expectations. This gives a sample complexity bound of 2L max 222 plus, vertical bar H vertical bar. Two data points. This bound grows. Logarithmically with vertical bar H vertical bar, the size of the hypothesis space. As shown above, a model parameterized by p parameters each with b bits of precision has a hypothesis space of size vertical bar h vertical bar equals 2bp. This means that, vertical bar h vertical bar equals 2bp. This means that the sample complexity upper bound grows linearly in the number of parameters. My understanding is that tighter bounds can be proven which exploit the fact that the hypotheses in a hypothesis space are usually not independent of one another. For example, Two neural networks with very similar weights will have highly correlated losses and loss variances. These bounds will use a more sophisticated measure of the complexity of the hypothesis space, such as the VC dimension, rather than literally counting possible hypotheses, and they are typically independent of the precision B. Inverse quadratically with Lmax. If the best hypothesis in the space has an expected loss very close to zero and the worst has an expected loss very close to Lmax, then slash Lmax is roughly what fraction of the way from the worst hypothesis to the best hypothesis we are aiming to get. In most cases it is possible to prove a tighter sample complexity bound which replaces the Lmax 2 term with something that looks more like the worst case variance of the loss function for any hypothesis in the space, max 2 equals HH2 DDLH, D. In this bound, the ratio slash max can be interpreted as how close we want to be to the best model expressed in units of standard deviations of the loss, 
and the maximum sample complexity grows quadratically in the inverse of desired accuracy in worst-case standard deviation units. This is essentially a signal-to-noise ratio where the strength of the signal corresponds to how finely we want to discriminate between different models, the more finely we would like to discriminate between models in the hypothesis space relative to the worst-case noise in the loss signal, the smaller the signal we would like to pick up, and the more data we will need. Logarithmically with one slash, the inverse of the desired confidence level. In practice this ends up mattering very little for hypothesis spaces as big as those typically used in deep learning, the 2-2, term in the numerator will be very small compared to, vertical bar h vertical bar, and make very little difference unless extreme confidence is sought. Many learning theory bounds simply directly bound the expectation e d d l h d entirely dropping the term. Dropping the dependence on b, replacing the maximum loss with the worst case loss standard deviation max, and dropping the term involving, the sample complexity bound becomes. NERM, p, l, cp slash max minus 2. Here the constant factor in the scaling law, c, depends on the hypothesis space and is usually quite small relative to the other terms. In later sections, we will essentially roll together both c and the signal-to-noise ratio, slash max minus 2 into a single constant factor k, which we will attempt to determine empirically, either from experiment or observational data about the number of data points required to train models of various sizes. Stochastic gradient descent bound. Most real-world machine learning uses some variant of stochastic gradient descent SGD as the optimization algorithm. The basic version of SGD works roughly as follows. Start with a random assignment of parameters 0 equals 0 1 0 2 dot 0 p. For t equals 1 t time steps. Draw a new sample dt from some distribution of data dt. Compute the gradient vector of the loss function with respect to the current parameter vector t on this data point gt equals lt dt. Update the parameter vector to move a small distance t in the direction opposite the gradient, i.e. downhill t equals t1 tgt. Return the model characterized by the final parameter values t. For some problems, SGD will return the hypothesis that minimizes empirical risk. I discuss a set of criteria under which SGD is guaranteed to find the global minimum in this appendix. If the data points are all IID, then the ERM bound can be applied directly to SGD for such problems. Dern, P, L, KP slash max minus 2. A more sophisticated argument can show that a similar bound applies even if the data points DT are not IID. The main difference is in the signal-to-noise ratio, where we substitute the worst-case loss standard deviation max with the worst-case gradient magnitude, Lmax. DSGD, P, L, KP, Lmax minus 2. Because one sample is processed in each step, these bounds on sample complexity are also bounding the number of steps, and therefore the running time of the algorithm. Intuitively, Lmax governs the most that the parameter values could move based on the influence of a single data point. The larger the possible move from the next data point dt plus 1, the harder it is to guarantee that t will have good average loss. Because a single data point generally provides a noisy estimate of the true gradient, Lmax is usually, but not always, dominated by the magnitude of the gradient noise, rather than the magnitude of the expected gradient, and the gradient noise, in turn, tends to be larger when the noise in the loss signal, max, is larger. Can these bounds apply to real-world problems? In most real-world ML problems, the conditions required for this bound to provably apply are not met. The true expected loss function over the space of parameter settings is often called a loss landscape. Roughly speaking, the loss landscape needs to be convex to be learnable with SGD. I explain the criteria in more detail in this appendix. Intuitively, 
This means that the loss landscape has a unique lowest point and it smoothly and gradually curves up from that point, with the curve getting steeper as you move further from the lowest point. With only two parameters P1 and P2, the loss landscape EDDLP1, P2, B, would basically look like a bowl, for example like this function. A ball set anywhere in this loss landscape will roll to the valley at 25, 25, which is analogous to SGD finding the empirical risk-minimizing hypothesis. However, most loss landscapes for real learning problems aren't convex. Notice that the function in this image has multiple local minima valleys in the landscape where the function curves upward everywhere. If the loss landscape is not convex, SGD is not guaranteed to find the empirical risk-minimizing hypothesis, or get anywhere close. SGD can work well in practice in non-convex loss landscapes. With that said, SGD does work reasonably well on a wide variety of practically relevant non-convex loss landscapes. Running SGD over loss landscapes that are almost certainly highly non-convex has produced models which generate idiomatic English text samples, play professional level Go, and so on. This is good performance in a practical, informal sense that is not defined relative to the best possible model in the model class. When SGD works well in practice, the average long-run loss tends to decrease fairly steadily as more data and computation is used, often converging towards some lowest loss achievable by SGD on that particular landscape. This produces training curves like this. The lowest loss achievable by SGD may be a local minimum that is not the loss that would be achieved by the best possible setting of parameters, analogous to how a ball placed at a random point on the landscape shown above would roll downward until it settled into one of the many valleys which often won't be the deepest valley. Converging towards some setting of parameters and which achieves a good loss turns out to be a much weaker desideratum than convergence to the best possible parameter setting. It may well be the case that there is some possible setting of the parameters that describe GPT-2 which would generate dramatically more believable sentences than GPT-2 but was in practice difficult to reach using SGD, or some setting of the parameters that describe AlphaGo 0 which would play dramatically better Go than AlphaGo 0 but would be very difficult to reach using SGD, and so on. But my goal is to estimate the number of parameters that ML researchers would in fact need to use to design an architecture such that an optimization algorithm ML researchers could write down, like SGD or one of its variants, would in fact select a transformative model. In other words, the estimate of parameter count should price in the possibility of landing at a suboptimal parameter setting that achieves worse performance than the true best setting of parameters for that architecture but is nonetheless transformative. The theoretical bound can provide a prior for real-world scaling behavior. Let's refer to the loss level that SGD converges toward, when it works well, as the reachable minimum loss. For these learning problems, we want to know how much data it would take to achieve a loss within of the reachable minimum loss. For convex learning problems, the reachable minimum loss is simply the global minimum loss, and the worst-case data requirements are described by the SGD sample complexity bound. The bound doesn't directly tell us how much data is necessary for SGD to get within of the reachable minimum loss for non-convex problems. However, in the absence of specific contradictory information, I think it's reasonable to have a lightly held prior that sample complexity will scale roughly linearly in parameter count for machine learning problems on which SGD works well in practice. For any given non-convex problem, the reachable minimum loss could be substantially higher than the global minimum loss, but the formulation of this question controls for that possibility. Under this formulation, it's not clear a priori how non-convexity should impact sample complexity. It might be that because the loss landscape is non-convex, SGD needs to take a longer and more circuitous path from the initial model to the reachable minimum loss than it would for convex problems. 
If the ratio between the path taken by SGD and the shortest path from initialization to the reachable minimum loss gets larger as parameter count increases, that is, if SGD takes more circuitous and winding paths for bigger models, this would mean that data requirements scale superlinearly in parameter count. There is not a lot of empirical data on this question, but my understanding is that the data so far implies that SGD doesn't tend to find long and winding optimization paths for current ML problems. This could certainly change for future ML problems, but the evidence so far makes the linear extrapolation seem like a reasonable starting point. It might be that SGD is effectively optimizing over some simpler convex subspace of the non-convex loss landscape, meaning the model that it finds could have been fully characterized by a smaller number of parameters P less than P if P equals P for some less than 1, then we should expect sample complexity to scale linearly in P if does not depend on P for the relevant learning problem then we should expect sample complexity to scale linearly in P if shrinks as grows, the scaling should be sublinear, and vice versa if grows with P. Overall, I don't see strong theoretical reasons to believe that the worst case number of data points required for SGD to get within of the reachable minimum loss should scale differently in the non-convex case than the convex case. My understanding from discussions with technical advisors is that machine learning researchers and engineers also tend to expect linear scaling to hold up roughly in practice, for example, I have seen ML tutorial websites cite the rule of 10, the heuristic that ML models need roughly 10x as much data as they have parameters to train well. If SGD works well in practice for transformative ML problems in the same informal sense that it works well in practice for image classification, game playing, language modeling, and so on, my prior is that data requirements would scale linearly in parameter count. Although I have a lot of uncertainty and consider substantially sublinear and substantially superlinear scaling plausible. In the rest of this document, I will describe how I attempt to use empirical information to reduce uncertainty about this scaling behavior, while keeping this prior in mind. What if we use a different optimization algorithm besides SGD? In most of the document, I focus on SGD because most large-scale modern machine learning mostly relies on SGD. But there are a wide variety of other optimization algorithms. Future models could be trained using alternatives such as black box search, which uses only loss value information and does not use loss gradient information, methods that use second-order derivatives such as Newton's method, and so on. There are certain conditions under which each of these algorithms is guaranteed to return the hypothesis that minimizes empirical risk, in those cases, the ERM sample complexity bound could be applied directly. As with SGD, we can likely prove tighter bounds that exploit the special structure of these problems, but my understanding from a very brief discussion with our technical advisor Paul is that the dependence on P and 1, 2 is likely to remain. Of course, any of these alternative optimization algorithms may be applied even when the conditions required for them to implement the ERM rule clearly do not hold, just as SGD is routinely applied to non-convex problems. In these cases, my first inclination would again be to treat these algorithms as optimizing over a smaller subspace on which they do implement the ERM rule, and thus start with the prior that sample complexity would scale linearly in parameter count, using reasoning analogous to the reasoning given above for SGD. However, I have spent much less time thinking about non-SGD optimization algorithms, and I am much less confident in my judgments about them. Ideally, we would collect empirical data about the sample complexity of alternative optimization algorithms rather than relying on pure theory. In the rest of this document, I review empirical evidence for the sample complexity of SGD. Experimental Scaling Laws from ML Papers Note since drafting this report, I encountered another relevant scaling experiment paper, Rosenfeld et al. 2019, which focuses on image classifiers. I have not read this paper yet, 
but technical advisor Jacob Hilton believes that the scaling behavior it finds is broadly consistent with my estimates. In reality, ML practitioners rarely specify a particular value to hit. Instead, they simultaneously choose a model architecture with a certain number of parameters P, a dataset of size D, and an objective function L such that they expect training that model on that dataset using that loss function will satisfy their real-world goal while making good use of their resources. How dataset size scales with parameter count in practice is therefore an implicit consequence of these practical choices, and might be very different from the theoretical predictions. Recall from part 1 that my definition of training data requirements for a transformative model refers to the amount of data that would be roughly optimal, according to the way researchers value different resources, for training a model with a certain number of parameters. In this section, I'll summarize findings from two recent machine learning papers which attempt to derive sample complexity scaling laws for specific ML problems using controlled experiments, both of which find that sample complexity scales according to a power law, DKP. I'll cover Kaplan et al. 2020, Scaling Laws for Neural Language Models, which finds that the amount of data required to train generative language models scales sublinearly with parameter count, more. Hessness et al. 2017, Deep Learning Scaling is Predictable, Empirically, which finds that sample complexity scales superlinearly with parameter count for a variety of supervised learning tasks including language modeling, more. My interpretation of these two papers and what I take away that seems relevant to the question of transformative model data requirements, more. In part 3, I will estimate the parameter count of a transformative model according to the neural network hypothesis and the genome anchor hypothesis, and extrapolate training data requirements from parameter count using scaling laws similar to the ones derived in these papers, especially Kaplan et al. 2020. Kaplan et al. 2020 Scaling Laws for Neural Language Models. This paper comes out of OpenAI, and one lead author is Jared Kaplan, an open philanthropy technical advisor. It describes a suite of experiments designed to isolate how the prediction loss achieved by a transformer-based generative language model changes as model size, dataset size, and training computation are varied over multiple orders of magnitude. Kaplan et al. 2020 derives two scaling laws that are especially relevant to the data requirements question the target accuracy law and the compute optimal scaling law. I implement these in this sheet. The key takeaways are the empirical relationship between dataset size and model size can be closely fit with power law curves for the range of model and dataset sizes tested in the paper. Both scaling laws find that for the language modeling problem, data requirements scale sublinearly as a function of model size. These scaling laws contradict one another. The former suggests that dataset size scales as parameter count to 0.74, while the latter suggests a scaling exponent of 0.37. I consider Kaplan et al. 2020 to be by far the most relevant piece of experimental evidence for how data requirements are likely to scale with parameter count for a transformative task. The Target Accuracy Law The Target Accuracy Law describes the minimum number of tokens DP, Q, which are required to train a model with P parameters to achieve the same loss that a smaller model of size QP could achieve with infinite training data, where Q is some fraction such as 0.5 or 0.1. They estimate the target accuracy law by comparing test loss achieved by training on a dataset large enough to be functionally infinite with the test loss achieved by training on various smaller dataset sizes. They generate this data by training six different sizes of model, ranging from 1E3 parameters to 1E9 parameters, each on eight different sizes of dataset, ranging from 2.1E7 to 2.2E10 tokens, for a total of 8 mol 6 equals 48 different training runs. In each of these training runs, they use early stopping, i.e., they stop training as soon as the loss on a held-out test set ceases to decrease. 
I will refer to this as the early stop test loss, stopping training just as the loss on a test set begins to plateau roughly minimizes test loss while preventing overfitting and ensuring that larger models always achieve a lower test loss. Using the data from the charts above, Kaplan et al. fit a function literally p, d, describing the early stop test loss, this function is a power law in both p and d. No overfitting or plateau was observed for the yellow line, 22b tokens, for models below 1b parameters, so this was taken to be representative of the infinite data limit for those smaller models. For each model size p below 1 billion in dataset size d that was tested, we can use this assumption to estimate pp, the smaller model size such literally p, d, is equal to literally p, 2.21011, the loss the smaller model achieves on the functionally infinite 22b token dataset. This, in turn, can be used to derive a function for dataset size dp, q, in terms of p and q equals p slash p which describes how much data would be needed to train a model of size p to achieve the same loss as a model of size p equals qp. Kaplan et al. show that dp, q, has the form kqp 0.74 it is a power law function in which the exponent is 0.74 and the constant factor is a function of q. Note that KQ quantifies a trade-off between model size and training data setting Q closer to zero means training a larger model on a small amount of data, and setting Q closer to one means training a smaller model on relatively more data. If we choose to minimize training computation, then Q0.11 and KQ288, I will use this value going forward. See this appendix for more details. The compute optimal training law and the contradiction. While Kaplan et al. don't attempt to choose the compute optimizing Q in the overfitting scaling law, they do generate a scaling law for compute optimal training using an alternative set of experiments, details in this appendix. DOPT P4.7106 P0.37 tokens. As you can see, this is in direct contradiction to the equation above which describes the minimum amount of data needed to achieve a target loss. The target loss scaling law predicts that at least DP, Q equals 0.11, 288p0.74 are needed to achieve the same loss as the best reachable loss of a model approximately 11% the size, and that Q0.11 approximately minimizes the use of computation for a given target loss. The two equations reach a crossing over point at approximately 1e12 parameters, at which point compute optimal training according to the DOPT P scaling law is using fewer data points than the minimum required according to the DP, Q, scaling law. I consider the target accuracy scaling law to be more credible than the compute optimal scaling law because it was derived from a simpler experimental procedure with less room for error, and is more consistent with both theoretical predictions and the observational evidence from our L models that I discuss below. I discuss the comparison between these two scaling laws and the contradiction in more detail in this appendix. Hessness et al. 2017 Deep Learning Scaling is Predictable, Empirically. This paper comes out of Baidu AI Research. It describes experiments deriving scaling laws for four different supervised learning or generative modeling problems, neural machine translation, language modeling, image classification, and speech recognition. I will focus on analyzing the language modeling results of Hessness et al. 2017 because they are directly comparable to the results in Kaplan et al. 2020. I implement the scaling laws Hessness et al. derived for language modeling in this sheet. Their procedure was roughly as follows. Generate random subsets of a vocabulary-restricted version of the 1 billion word language modeling dataset ranging in size from approximately 1E6 to approximately 4E8 words, plus a held-out test set. For each dataset size D. Generate a set of candidate models of increasing size me, 1, me, 2, me, 3. 
train the candidate models on the dataset of size D with no dropout or other regularization, until the loss the model achieves on the test set either flattens out and stops changing, because the model has saturated its capacity, or starts to increase, because the model has started to overfit to the training dataset. Search for the smallest candidate model me such that the test loss starts to increase with marginal epochs rather than continuing to stay flat. Fit a scaling law PDKD to the data points, D, me, which describes the smallest model that barely overfits a dataset of size D. Comparison to Kaplan et al. 2020. Critically, the goal of this paper is very different from the goal of Kaplan et al. 2020. Kaplan et al. aimed to find a scaling law that describes how much data would be required for a model of size P to achieve the same test loss that a smaller model of size QP would achieve with infinite data, assuming that training is always stopped early so that no model overfits and larger models always achieve lower loss than smaller models. On the other hand, Hessness et al. don't try to avoid overfitting because they aim to find the smallest model size that can barely overfit a given dataset, or equivalently, the largest model size that does not overfit to the dataset even if trained with infinite epochs. Accordingly, Hessness et al. specifically sought to avoid all regularization because this would diminish model capacity, whereas Kaplan et al. regularize not only with early stopping but also dropout. Hessness et al. find that the smallest model size PD that barely overfits a dataset of size D scales as D0.72. Inverting this, that means that the largest dataset size DP that a model of size P can barely overfit scales as P1 0.72 equals P1.39. This is highly superlinear scaling. The scaling laws for other learning problems that Hessness et al. derive are qualitatively similar with scaling exponents ranging from approximately 1.28 to approximately 1.75. On the other hand, Kaplan et al. find sublinear scaling. The table below summarizes the differences between the language model scaling behaviors according to the two papers. Hessness et al. 2017. Kaplan et al. 2020, Target Accuracy Law. Form. DP equals KP. DP, Q equals KQP. Exponent. 1.39. 0.738. Constant. 381,000. Parametrized by Q. To optimize training computation Q equals 0.11 and KQ equals 288. Procedure. On a fixed dataset, train small models of increasing size with no regularization to find the smallest model for which test loss starts to get worse with marginal epochs through that dataset. Repeat for different dataset sizes. Using this, estimate PD, how the smallest model that overfits a dataset scales with dataset size. Invert to find DP. Train every model on every dataset size with 10% dropout. When training large models on small datasets use early stopping to ensure that it doesn't overfit. Taking the largest size to represent infinite data, estimate QP, D, the fraction Q such that a model of size QP trained on infinite data achieves the same loss as a model of size P trained on D data points with early stopping. Rearrange to find DP. Q. Meaning. Maximum model capacity the smallest dataset size DP such that when a model of size P is trained on DP data points, its unregularized test loss will never get worse even in the limit of infinite epochs. Minimum data for a target loss the dataset size DP, Q, such that if a model of size P is trained on DP, Q, data points with early stopping, it will achieve the same test loss as the best loss that a model of size QP would achieve with infinite data. I charted the two scaling laws side by side here. I think the question that Kaplan et al. ask is substantially more relevant for thinking about training data requirements for a transformative model, as operationalized in part 1, than the question Hessness et al. ask. 
it is generally not relevant whether a model train without any regularization measures would start to overfit to a dataset in the limit of infinite epochs, because in practice most ML training runs are heavily regularized with early stopping, dropout, normalization, and other techniques, see this appendix for details. Training a small model past the point of saturation with no regularization would minimize the size of the trained model for a given target loss, but only at a major cost in terms of dataset size, training computation, and wall clock time. This is rarely a worthwhile trade-off compared to training a somewhat larger model with substantially less data, computation, and time, potentially compressing the trained model later if model size is crucial for the application. With that said, I am unsure how much of the difference between these two scaling laws is due to the fact that Hessness et al. do not regularize the models they train or train them for more epochs than is generally practical. Some of the difference may instead be attributable to other aspects of the training procedure, or various details of the model architectures or datasets. I don't know of a simple way to estimate what the Hessness et al. 2017 experiments would imply about the number of data points required to reach a target accuracy, or what the Kaplan et al. 2020 experiments would imply about the smallest dataset that a model could never overfit. Without a systematic comparison reconciling the two results, I am inclined to put some weight on both sources of evidence. Summary and Interpretation of Experimental Evidence we are trying to glean information about how much data might be required to train a model on some unknown future learning problem that would have a transformative impact at a certain threshold of performance. While it's not appropriate to directly apply the specific scaling laws derived in Kaplan et al. 2020 or Hessness et al. 2017 for other ML problems, these scaling laws could help calibrate our intuitions about transformative model data requirements. Absent other evidence, it is plausible that data requirements for unknown future problems scale in a broadly similar way to data requirements for problems that have been systematically studied, with the caveat that the possibility of selection bias means we should not necessarily give this empirical evidence strong weight relative to theoretical considerations. In this section, I summarize the high-level qualitative expectations that I take away from these two papers. Transformative model data requirements may be well expressed as a simple power law function of model size, more. Highly superlinear and highly sublinear scaling both seem possible, although sublinear scaling seems more likely, more. Scaling may be governed by a simple power law in the relevant regime. All of the key empirical results in both papers imply that the very simple functional form of dp, q equals kqp can describe how dataset size scales with model size, at least over the range of model sizes tested. These are the fits for the experiments run in Kaplan et al. 2020 to generate the target accuracy law. These are the fits for the experiments run in Hessness et al. 2017 for word language models, the closest analog to the ML problem studied in Kaplan et al. 2020. Goodness of fit is not quantified in the papers, but we can see from visual inspection that these fits are fairly tight over a wide range of model sizes and or dataset sizes. My understanding is that empirical fits this clean are relatively unusual. Furthermore, both papers find that the exponent of the power law is a function only of the parameter count and the data distribution, whereas the constant is dependent on factors like the tokenization, the target accuracy, see above, and the model architecture. My understanding is that there is also some additional evidence that power law functions are an appropriate way to model empirical sample complexity scaling behavior. Hessness et al. 2017 claims that theoretical work supports this functional form, providing a literature review of the theory which I have not examined. Both papers cite related empirical work which demonstrates power law scaling for various ML problems, including for other architectures besides neural networks. I have not read any papers deriving empirical scaling laws other than these two because my understanding is that the rest of the literature is less current and study smaller models. 
In Appendix D.7, Kaplan et al. report that they experimented with a number of functional forms, and found that power law fits were more accurate than other functions. However, I do not know which other functional forms they tried, or what the full set of a priori reasonable functional forms would be. More generally, my understanding is that the power law fx equals cx is a very simple and basic type of relationship between two variables that describes a wide range of phenomena reasonably well, and can arise due to a number of possible underlying dynamics. This is similar to the ubiquity of Gaussian distributions in modeling noise. The power law fit is in a small class of functions with a similar level of simplicity and practical significance, making me more inclined to privilege it as a prior. More complex functional forms would seem relatively unmotivated given our ignorance about the dynamics of a potentially transformative ML problem and ML training in general. Other similarly simple and ubiquitous functional forms seem less appropriate, given what we do know. In addition to the theoretical and empirical evidence cited in the two papers, it is important that the power law is capable of representing the linear relationship fx equals mx. This is the relationship between sample complexity and parameter count predicted by the ERM bound, with the slope m being roughly equivalent to the signal-to-noise ratio of the ML problem. Note that smooth power law scaling likely only applies within a certain regime of model sizes for any given learning problem but this is likely not an issue for using a power law functional form to estimate transformative model data requirements, more in this appendix. Highly superlinear and highly sublinear scaling are both possible. In Kaplan et al. 2020, both the target accuracy law, exponent of 0.74, and the compute optimal training law, exponent of 0.37, predict that the number of tokens required to train language models scale substantially sublinearly in the parameter count while Hessness et al. 2017 predicts scaling with an exponent of approximately 1.39. As I explained above, I consider the results of Kaplan et al. 2020 to be more informative than the results of Hessness et al. 2017 because the latter employs no regularization, but I am uncertain how much of the difference between the two results can be attributed to this, and place some weight on the possibility that Hessness et al. 2017 is more representative of how sample complexity would scale for a transformative model. Below, I generate a subjective probability distribution over the scaling exponent after incorporating observational evidence from our L training times. Effective horizon length. So far we have discussed sample complexity, i.e. the number of independent samples we would need to draw from a specified data distribution D, such as web text or ImageNet, to train a model with a certain number of parameters P. This does not directly estimate the number of subjective seconds of data that would be required to train a model of size P and the translation between number of samples and subjective seconds may be very different for different machine learning problems. I'll define the effective horizon length of an ML problem as the amount of data it takes, on average, to tell whether a perturbation to the model improves performance or worsens performance. If we believe that the number of samples required to train a model of size P is given by KP, then the number of subjective seconds that would be required should be given by HKP where h is the effective horizon length expressed in units of subjective seconds per sample. This is an informal and somewhat fuzzy definition. Pinning it down precisely would require specifying how large a perturbation we are considering, for example randomly perturbing all parameter values by 0.1%, as well as how confident we would like to be about which of two different models is higher performing, for example two-thirds probability of choosing the correct model. Furthermore, the effective horizon length should likely increase over the course of training, as the model gets closer to optimal, there is less room for improvement so it should take more data to tell whether a particular tweaking of parameter value slightly improves performance. However, if we make an assumption about the effective horizon length for one particular ML problem, 
we can use that as a reference point for thinking about the effective horizon length of other problems. I will be using the problem of predict the next token of text given the context so far, which GPT-3 was trained on, as my reference ML problem. I will assume that the effective horizon length for the next token prediction problem is simply one token. At average human reading speeds, this would be roughly one quarter of a subjective second. This assumption can give a starting point for thinking about the effective horizon length of other ML problems. In other words, we can ask in this ML problem, how much data does it take to get about as much useful information about whether a perturbation to the model was helpful for performance as one token provides in the next token prediction problem? This is still a fuzzy and incomplete definition, but it seems possible to get a rough order of magnitude sense using qualitative heuristic arguments. I think it is easiest to illustrate this in the context of some examples. In the rest of this section, I will discuss effective horizon length in the context of supervised learning, more reinforcement learning, more a strategy that involves training a generative language model or other type of generative model to predict what it will see next, but evaluating its performance on downstream tasks such as translation or summarization, potentially with fine-tuning, more. For a supervised learning problem, suppose we train a supervised learning model on a hypothetical dataset of binary advice questions. Each binary advice question describes a context and two proposed courses of action A and B, and asks which is better. All of the answers are simply one character, either A or B. The context is intended to give a generally intelligent and knowledgeable human the information they need to get up to speed on the question, so it could be arbitrarily long general knowledge questions could be zero context, relationship advice could be a couple of pages of context, complex military strategy questions could be hundreds of pages of context, and so on. Suppose we train a model that can process sequences of text, such as a transformer, on a large dataset of binary advice question and answer pairs. In contrast to a model such as GPT-3 which attempts to predict every word, this model would simply process the entire question and then attempt to predict whether the answer is A or B. While it must perform a forward pass for every word that it processes, it will only receive a loss signal once per question rather than once per token. I would predict that the compute optimal number of tokens required to train this model will scale linearly with the length of the question, if we performed experiments exactly like the Kaplan et al. 2020 scaling experiments for this supervised learning problem, I believe we would find that doubling the average question length in the dataset roughly doubles the optimal number of tokens required to train a model of a fixed size. I would guess that the effective horizon length of this problem is the length of the average question. More generally, since the notion of a sample is well defined for supervised learning, it seems like it would make sense most of the time to simply assume that the effective horizon length is equivalent to the amount of data in the average sample. For example, I would consider the effective horizon length of an image net model to be one image, which is a fraction of a subjective second, although the concept is mainly useful for ML problems that involve sequential data such as text, code, video, audio, game playing, and navigating the physical world. For a reinforcement learning problem. In this section, I will Briefly cover the formal definition of a reinforcement learning RL problem, more. Describe how I estimate the effective horizon length of an RL problem in theory, using the discount rate, more. Discuss how well the concept applies to RL training runs in practice, more. Explain the functional form, HKP which I will be using to estimate the number of time steps required to train an RL model, more. Formal description of a reinforcement learning problem. Reinforcement learning problems are often formally described as Markov decision processes, NDPs, in which an agent must maximize its expected sum of rewards in a stochastic environment. An MDP consists of 
A set of possible states SS that the environment could be in. A set of possible actions available to the agent. A transition function TS, S, A, a probabilistic function which takes as input a state and an action taken by the agent in that state, and outputs a probability distribution over the possible subsequent states of the environment. The transition function of an MDP must satisfy the Markov property it must be the case that the probability of a subsequent state depends only on the current state and action, rather than any past states or actions. This means that the states must be rich enough to capture all possibly relevant information from the past. A reward function RR, S, and S, a probabilistic function which takes as input a state, action, and next state, and outputs a real valued transition reward that the agent receives when it transitions from state S to state S after taking action A. The distribution over rewards the agent can receive conditional taking action on state S is therefore RR, S, and DS, S, A, incorporating uncertainty about the transition function. A discount factor indicating the agent's time preference. The agent must implement a policy, a, s, a probabilistic function which takes as input the current state and outputs a probability distribution over actions to take in that state. The agent's goal at any given time step t0 is to choose actions at which maximize its expected discounted sum of rewards rt over all possible subsequent states st plus 1. er, st0 equals t equals t0 at a at, st, st plus first t0 t st plus 1, street, at, rrt, street, at, st plus 1. Most RL problems in modern practice are episodic. This means that there are one or more terminal states send S such that when the environment transitions into a terminal state, it never transitions out S send TS, S equals 0, SS in a game, terminal states are generally win, lose, and draw states. An episode consists of the complete sequence of states, actions, and rewards, street, and RT, from a starting state to a terminal state, for example one game of chess. An episode transcript equals S0, A0, R0, S1, ST-1, A T-1, RT-1, ST is the complete sequence of states, actions, and transition rewards that occur within a particular episode. Different episodes are fully independent of one another the agent retains no memories from one episode to the next, and the agent's actions in one episode do not affect how a subsequent episode plays out. Deriving effective horizon length of an RL problem from discount rate because it would usually make sense in the context of supervised learning to estimate the effective horizon length as the average length of one sample, naively it might be reasonable to define the effective horizon length of an RL problem to be the average length of one episode, since different episodes are independent from one another just as samples are in supervised learning. However, I think that average episode length would usually overestimate the amount of data required to tell whether a perturbation to the model improves performance in an episodic RL problem, and it doesn't help generate an estimate for non-episodic problems. The agent could be receiving a reward RT at every time step, such that a single episode may consist of hundreds or thousands of reward signals. While I don't think it makes sense to treat each such reward as its own sample, I also don't think we should count one episode as equivalent to one sample regardless of how much useful information is contained in the intermediate rewards. I believe the discount rate can help to crudely quantify the value of these intermediate rewards, if we assume that the discount rate was set roughly optimally for the problem in question. More on that below. In RL, the optimization algorithm is selecting for a policy which maximizes the expected discounted sum of future rewards from a randomly selected state. If equals 1, the agent values a reward it may receive arbitrarily far into the future just as much as a reward it may receive in the current time step, 
and the optimization algorithm is simply finding a policy that maximizes the expected sum of rewards over an entire episode. In this case, it seems that the effective horizon length should be the average length of an episode, in accordance with the naive intuition. If equals zero, the agent only values reward in the current time step, and the optimization algorithm is simply finding a policy which maximizes immediate reward. In this case, it seems that the effective horizon length should probably be one time step. Prima facie, the more important distant future rewards are to overall performance, i.e. the closer is to one, the more time we should expect it to take to tell whether a perturbation to the model is an improvement. I expect that for zero less than less than one, the expected horizon length can be approximated by the minimum of average episode length and one slash one. The goal of our L is to produce a policy which maximizes the discounted sum of future rewards from a randomly selected time step T0 equals T equals T0 T T0 RT. It turns out that we can express the discounted sum of future rewards as a weighted average of reward sums over increasingly long time scales. If the expected episode length is infinite, the sum looks like this. T equals T0 T T0 RT equals H equals 1 H11 T equals T0 T0 plus H1 RT. The right-hand side is an infinite sum of the form P0 RT0 plus P1 RT0 plus RT0 plus 1 plus P2 RT0 plus RT0 plus 1 plus RT0 plus 2, plus where the pi sum to 1. We can potentially think of this as the weighted average of undiscounted performance on a Horizon 1 subproblem, a Horizon 2 subproblem, a Horizon 3 subproblem, and so on, starting from a randomly selected point in time T0. The average horizon length across these subproblems would then be given by h equals h equals 1 h11 h equals 1 slash 1. Note that we assumed an infinite sum in the derivation above. If the expected episode length is finite, the equation for the probability distribution is slightly more complicated, but 1 slash 1 remains a very good approximation of the average horizon length as long as the average episode length is substantially larger, for example greater than 2x, than the value of 1 slash 1. In general for practical RL applications, can be set such that 1 slash 1, is substantially smaller than the expected episode length to speed up training, see below. This implies that across a large number of episodes, we should expect to receive the equivalent of one independent signal about an RL policy's performance roughly once every h equals 1 slash 1, time steps on average. This argument isn't fully formal and relies substantially on intuition. I suspect there is something more refined and mathematically satisfying that could be said about the notion of horizon length and would be curious for technical work which explores this concept further and attempts to pin it down. Researchers strategically select the discount rate and training strategy. Using the discount rate to estimate effective horizon length of an RL problem works best if the discount rate and the overall training algorithm or strategy is set strategically to be roughly optimal for the higher level task that ML researchers are trying to solve with the RL problem. In this section, I'll describe what I mean by this. In most real-world RL training runs, there is no discount rate intrinsically baked into the ultimate task. Researchers are trying to accomplish goals like produce a model that beats human professionals at StarCraft. They must design an RL environment and choose an appropriate discount rate such that optimizing for performance in that environment using that discount rate is likely to produce a program that accomplishes this goal. Sometimes there will be a simple naive RL problem corresponding to a particular high-level task. For example, if the task is to achieve a high win rate on a zero-sum game like chess, Dota, or StarCraft, the natural way to directly encode what we care about into a reward signal is something like plus one when the agent wins, minus one when it loses, and zero when a game ends with a draw. An agent trained with vanilla policy gradients to maximize expected total reward over an episode with no discounting, 
i.e. equals 1, using the win-lose slash draw reward signal is optimizing for precisely what we want, but it seems like it would take an unnecessarily large amount of training experience, computation to train the model with such a sparse reward signal. Often, it is possible to get a good win rate in practice by taking various measures to improve on the naive training strategy, such as by using an actor-critic training method, in which one model, the critic, is trained to predict the value of being in a certain state, i.e., the expected probability of winning from that state, and another model, the actor, is trained to optimize for the critic's assessment of value. I have attempted to informally explain how these methods work in this appendix. Introducing proximate reward signals while bringing the discount rate closer to zero. For example, the OpenAI5 Dota bot was receiving some form of intermediate reward signal essentially every time step of play during training, providing points for various metrics such as money, kills, deaths, assists, last hits, and the like. If it is possible to solve a given task without displaying much sophisticated long-term behavior, then researchers can get away with using steep discount rates to reduce the total time steps of training. Similarly, discount rates can be steep if researchers can design an RL problem with a very useful proximate reward signal, or if it turns out to be simple for a critic to learn to predict the long-term reward very well in an actor-critic model. On the other hand, if it's not possible to solve the task without displaying sophisticated long-term behaviors such as learning or planning, and it's hard to design good proximate reward signals that capture those behaviors, researchers will need to use sparser rewards and shallower discount rates, and accept the resulting longer training times. When training large RL models, I will assume that researchers are generally attempting to use the steepest discount rates they can while still solving the practical task they set out to solve and make sure of strategies such as actor-critic methods to extract more information from each piece of data. This means that the 1-1 estimate using the discount rate that researchers choose in an RL problem they design is likely to roughly track for the longest timescale of behaviors that are actually important for the agent to learn given the available budget. The assumption that is chosen optimally is more likely to be true the more that computation is an important constraint, because researchers may not be sufficiently incentivized to bring time-step complexity down if training computation is a tiny fraction of the overall cost of the project to begin with. Functional form for extrapolating time-step complexity of an RL problem. We can define time-step complexity in the same way we defined sample complexity in the discussion of the Kaplan et al. 2020 paper above the time-step complexity of an RL problem, S, A, T, R, together with a number of parameters P and desired accuracy Q is the number of time steps of interaction with the environment that would be required to train a model of size P to achieve the best discounted sum of rewards that could be achieved by a smaller model of size QP on the same problem in the limit of infinite training time steps. Other things being equal, I would expect time step complexity to scale linearly with effective horizon length, where effective horizon length is defined as the minimum of the average episode length in 1 slash 1. Consider an RL environment ENV, defined by a set of states S a set of possible actions A, a transition function DS, S, A, and a reward function RR, S, A, S. Suppose we want to train the same model on two different RL problems from ENV that differ only in their discount rates 1 equals 0.99 for the first RL problem, and 2 equals 0.999 for the second RL problem. Prima facie, I would expect that the time step complexity would be 10 times longer for the second problem because I expect that it would require a similar number of independent performance signals to train on both problems, and it takes 10 times longer, in subjective time, to collect each signal if equals 0.999 than if equals 0.99. This is a very loose approximation, even if everything else about an RL problem is held fixed, 
a tenfold increase in 1 slash 1, may not translate to a precisely tenfold increase in time step complexity. It could be the case that even though the optimization process is theoretically intended to converge toward a policy which maximizes the discounted sum of future rewards, the policy that SGD actually converges toward is different. SGD might always produce a policy that effectively only optimizes approximately 10 time steps into the future, even if the discount rate during training was set well above 0.9. In that case, the time step complexity when equals 0.99 may be quite similar to the time step complexity when equals 0.999. It could be the case that the sum of total reward over longer timescales has lower variance than the sum of total reward over shorter timescales for this problem. This would mean that even though it takes 10 times as long to get an unbiased estimate of performance with 2, each such signal is less noisy than the analogous signal using 1 and it takes fewer of them to learn the right behavior. Conversely, it could be the case that total reward over longer timescales has higher variance, so time step complexity is much more than 10 times worse using 2, or perhaps learning can't get off the ground at all with a discount rate of 0.999 because it introduces too much noise. In general, Real-world reinforcement learning is substantially more messy and complicated than supervised learning, and a whole host of factors can make learning difficult and affect realized time-step complexity. With that said, the basic intuition that effective horizon length for our L problems should be defined as above seems reasonably sound to me. In that case, time-step complexity should simply be sample complexity times the effective horizon length. Given this, I make the structural assumption going forward that time step complexity can be modeled with the functional form TP, H, Q equals HKP, where H is the effective horizon length of the problem, P is parameter count, and Q describes the target accuracy. This combines the assumption that the average length of a sample is given by the horizon length, and that sample complexity for RL will scale according to a power law function, as in supervised learning and generative modeling. For generative models which transfer to downstream skills, I made the assumption above the effective horizon length for the next token prediction problem in particular is one token. However, most of the time we don't intrinsically care about the model's performance on predicting the next token per se, but rather whether it can use language to do useful things such as question answering, summarization, translation, programming, etc. Let's call these the model's downstream skills. Ability to predict the next token is usefully correlated with many downstream skills. We may evaluate downstream skills in several ways. Zero shot, i.e. just presenting the language model with an instance of the task with no additional information. For example you might simply type a question into the model's context window, such as what does it mean if my air conditioner is leaking? The model would respond by attempting to predict what would come next if this text were found on the internet, which will sometimes look like a helpful answer. Zero shot with prompting or context setting, which means including natural language instructions in the context to increase the probability that predicting what comes next is likely to yield a helpful response. For example, we may prompt with something like please provide a helpful and accurate answer to the following question underscore or this is the answer that a technician knowledgeable about air conditioners would give to the following question underscore. Using within context learning, or few shot learning, which means providing a few examples of the desired downstream skill within the context window. We might provide three examples of questions about appliances followed by accurate and helpful answers before asking the question we would like to know about. After fine-tuning on a much larger number of examples of the relevant skill, unlike any of the above strategies, fine-tuning actually updates the model's weights and tends to lead to better performance. As next token prediction accuracy improves, zero-shot and few-shot performance for a large number of downstream skills improves simultaneously in a relatively predictable way, with or without context setting. 
This makes it meaningful to ask about the effective horizon length for the auxiliary ML problem of learning a particular downstream skill in the course of predicting text, as opposed to the primary ML problem of learning to predict the next token. I'll informally define the effective horizon length of a downstream skill analogously to the other definition as the amount of data it takes, on average, to tell whether a perturbation to the model improves performance or worsens performance at the downstream skill of interest. Again, we can try to think about this in relation to the reference of next token prediction. The effective horizon length will get longer over the course of training because it is generally easier to tell which of two incompetent models is better for most skills. When the model is still relatively incompetent at basic grammar, any small perturbation which causes the model to make fewer grammatical mistakes is likely to improve performance at the downstream skill of interest, because basic grammar is a prerequisite for most of them. But later in training, both models will be equally excellent at the basics of writing, and it will likely take much more time to tell which is better at complex downstream skills. Consider a large language model which is already competent at basic writing. Suppose we want to evaluate the model on one of two possible downstream skills writing stories which have a creepy atmosphere, or writing stories which have a satisfying twist ending. If we perturb each of the model's weights by some, how many tokens do we need to see it produce before we can tell if that perturbation improved each of these downstream skills? Prima facie, it should be easier to tell if the perturbation made the model better at creating a creepy atmosphere, something which is generally demonstrated continuously throughout a story, than to tell if it made the model better at crafting a twist ending, something generally observed only once per story. Because of this, the create a creepy atmosphere skill probably has a shorter effective horizon length than the write a satisfying twist ending skill. The perplexity loss is correlated with both skills, getting better at prediction will smoothly improve the model's zero-shot and few-shot ability to write creepily and to write a good twist ending. However, I expect that getting to excellent zero-shot or few-shot performance at writing a twist ending will require training on more tokens than getting to excellent zero-shot or few-shot performance at creating a creepy atmosphere. I also expect that fine-tuning the model to achieve excellent performance at writing a twist ending will require more computation and data than fine-tuning it to achieve excellent performance at creating a creepy atmosphere. Improving the accuracy of next token prediction will simultaneously improve zero-shot and few-shot dash within context performance at many downstream skills like these two, and in general I would predict that the ones which seem to have a longer effective horizon, in the sense of requiring more words to tell which of two similar models is better will require achieving closer to dash perfect prediction to master zero shot, or with few shot learning, and or require more data and computation to master with fine tuning. However, actually quantitatively estimating the effective horizon length of any given skill is an extremely messy empirical question, because there is likely to be some amount of transfer between shorter horizon skills and longer horizon skills. Consider the binary advice questions problem described above. We can imagine two different training strategies for training a language model if we have a data distribution of questions and answers. Supervised learning, as described above we train the model to predict only the answers to questions, although it must process the question first and uses more computation on longer questions. Pre-training and fine-tuning we pre-train the model to predict every token of the question and the answer, and then fine-tune using the supervised learning method, but using no more data or computation than the pre-training step took. A supervised learning model with n parameters will be much better at answering binary advice questions than a fine-tuned language model with n parameters if both models are trained with a compute optimal amount of data for their respective task. This is because the supervised learning model has seen a lot more data and performed a lot more computation. If we assume that the scaling is similar to what Kaplan et al. find, the supervised learning model has seen 288 and 0.74 whole questions, 
while the fine-tuned language model has seen only one set of 288 N0.74 tokens in the pre-training step and another dataset of the same size in the fine-tuning step. If the average length of a question was 1000 tokens, then the fine-tuned language model has seen 500 times less data and performed 500 times fewer flop than the supervised learning model. If we had a fixed compute budget C and were not data constrained, and we wanted to train a model to be good at answering long binary advice questions, we could either train a small model on a lot of data using supervised learning or a large model on a smaller amount of data using pre-training and fine-tuning. It's an empirical question which one would give better advice, it's clear that being good at modeling the question will help to some extent with the task of answering questions well, but it's unclear how much, and whether that will make up for the fact that the fine-tuned language model would have seen a lot less data and would be trained to devote space and attention to many aspects of language modeling besides figuring out whether to answer A or B to a binary advice question. Observational evidence of RL model training times. The empirical evidence I've examined so far comes from supervised learning and generative modeling problems. As of July 2020, I am not aware of any papers that systematically study sample complexity scaling behavior for RL problems. This is an important gap, because if a transformative model is trained with techniques similar to current ML techniques, it seems likely that reinforcement learning will play some role. In order to have a transformative impact, it is likely that the model will have to have substantially superhuman abilities in at least some domains, and it is difficult to use supervised learning alone to discover strategies fundamentally different from the ones humans use. In this section, I'll describe the process I followed to collect observational evidence about various RL training runs, more. I'll show that a power law fit similar to the target accuracy law from Kaplan et al. 2020 describes this data reasonably well, more. Selection criteria and process for RL training data points. Research analyst Tom Davidson and I collected several examples of RL model training times. We gathered examples using a loose informal process. We started with the most widely publicized RL results between 2015 and February 2020, which we were already aware of through the media and our social networks StarCraft, Go, the Rubik's Cube, Dota, and Atari. We then moderately expanded our search by a, browsing recent DeepMind and OpenAI publications for additional RL results, and b, searching archive for recent reinforcement results, particularly in other competitive games such as poker. We selected papers that were relatively highly cited and appeared to achieve state-of-the-art RL results in a relatively important domain. We selected 15 RL models during this search. In this sheet, we recorded several pieces of relevant information about each one. For example the parameter count, the number of time steps and or episodes of training, the number of flop performed per time step, the discount rate, etc. Once we had collected this information, I performed an additional filter, hiding rows in the spreadsheet if any of the following conditions applied. Error or confusion The paper did not give me enough information to confidently estimate one of the key variables, I had good reason to suspect one of my estimates was incorrect in some way, or there was something conceptually confusing to me about the result. Small training run The training run was small enough that the cost of computation and data were likely a negligible fraction of the overall project costs. For such training runs, it likely wouldn't have been worthwhile to put effort into training in a compute and data-efficient way, and it is more likely that models were trained for an inefficiently long time, with poorly tuned hyperparameters, and so on. As I explained in Part 1, my operationalization of data requirements for a transformative model assumes a well-optimized training run, and smaller training runs provide less evidence about this quantity. 
poorly optimized training run I had strong reason to believe that a large-scale training run was nonetheless not well optimized, for example, a confident expert opinion or a clear example in which someone achieves substantially better performance per unit cost by training more efficiently. There were five remaining models Alpha Star, the rerun training run from OpenAI's Dota project, the large Impala model trained on Atari 57, and both the small and large AlphaGo Zero models. The filter view named Mainline contains these models, to see it, click on data in the toolbar, then select filter views, then select mainline. There are two other filter view options, none, which includes all data points, and high-end, which displays a set of points that result in a much steeper scaling law. This search was not highly systematic or exhaustive, but I expect that we have captured a significant fraction of the well-optimized large-scale state of dash the art RL results, simply because large-scale deep RL is still relatively new and largely restricted to a small number of well-resourced labs as of mid-2020. We may expand this dataset in the future. I expect we will see a number of new RL results in the coming years. Sample complexity scaling behavior and interpretation. Above, I suggested that we should expect the number of time steps needed to train an RL model to be described by th, q, p equals hkqp, where p is the parameter count, h is the horizon length and Q less than 1 means that we want to train the model long enough to achieve the same performance as a smaller model of size QP. If each sample is one horizon length, then the number of samples D needed to train a model of a certain size would be given by DQ, P equals TH, Q, P, H equals KQP. The key pieces of information we need to interpolate a sample complexity scaling law of this form are parameter count P, total time steps of training T, horizon length H, and desired accuracy Q. In practice, researchers don't explicitly choose Q, so we won't be able to explicitly disentangle that factor. We will try to fit an approximate scaling law DPKP, where the constant factor K incorporates researchers' implicit choices about Q. I've collected information about the three variables, P, T, and H, required to fit this approximate law in columns DG of the sheet. Horizon length was calculated to be 1 1, for the Impala and Dota agents, Alpha star had equals 1 so the horizon length was taken to be the average length of a game of StarCraft, roughly approximately 10 minutes according to the paper, horizon length was taken to be 1 move for Alpha. Go. 0. As predicted, a simple power law function provides a reasonable fit for the number of horizons as a function of parameter count, considering the small sample size. I have plotted this here, the chart would be difficult to see if pasted in the document. The green line is the best fit power law trend line for the number of horizons in terms of parameter count DP 2300P0.782. The reported correlation between P and the number of horizons is given by R equals 0.5280.72, although we should not take this literally given the extremely small sample size, adding or removing one data point can dramatically change this value. The precise scaling behavior is sensitive to the set of models included. If all models are included, the scaling exponent is about 1. If we include large models trained on an unusually large amount of experience such as OpenAI's Rubik's Cube model and include the Dota original run rather than the Dota clean run data point the scaling exponent can climb well above 1. Viewers of the spreadsheet can switch between the provided filter views or create their own filter views, which will be reflected in the two charts. The data points included in the high-end filter view results in an exponent of 1.41, and the vertical lines in the exponent plot here give a sense of the spread. How I think about data requirements overall. Overall, I think there is moderate theoretical and empirical evidence supporting the following claims about data requirements for learning problems similar to current learning problems. 
Power law fit is a function of p. It is sensible to model the function relating parameter count p to number of training data points d as a power law dp equals kp. This is a simple functional form which produces a strong fit in scaling laws derived from controlled experiments, and also fits observational data from our L training runs reasonably well. The two papers I examined also claim that this functional form is grounded in theory or intuition, although I have not investigated this. The constant factor will depend on how close the model gets to the best possible loss, this is an implicit choice researchers make that we generally don't know precisely. Somewhere around linear scaling from ML theory and informal heuristics used by ML practitioners, we should have a prior that one, i.e. linear scaling, and that the constant factor will scale with the variance in the loss signal. Experimental evidence from Kaplan et al. 2020 and observational evidence from our L suggests that the exponent may be closer to approximately 0.7.0.8 for well-optimized training runs on problems similar to current learning problems. Hessness et al. 2017 shows that superlinear scaling, approximately 1.25.1.75, is possible, but the experiments in that paper were a lot less representative of the likely trade-offs researchers would make in a realistic commercial setting. Horizon length adjustment The length of one data point can be very different for different learning problems. To estimate the total amount of subjective time that a model needs to spend in training, we have to multiply the number of data points it requires by the effective horizon length of the problem it is training on. For supervised learning models, the horizon length is unambiguous. For our L models, 1 slash 1, and or the episode length can serve as good proxies. Horizon length is largely exogenous, and we need to think through the details of a learning problem including options for reward shaping, to estimate it rather than calculating it from other quantities. Our L penalty even after adjusting for horizon length, sample complexity seems to scale more poorly for our L models than for supervised learning models, likely because our L is more noisy. Subjective distributions over scaling exponent and constant factor. In this section, I only generate a probability distribution over the number of horizons needed to train a transformative model if training is done in an optimized way. I will discuss considerations feeding into what horizon length may be necessary in part 3. I will assume that the number of horizons follows the power law function dpkp. My subjective distribution over the scaling exponent has a median of 0.8 because I am inclined to mostly anchor to the theoretical predictions but place somewhat more weight on sublinear scaling than superlinear scaling because both Kaplan et al. 2020 and the highest quality or L data points seem to suggest somewhat sublinear scaling, and I don't consider Hessness et al. 2017 to be as representative. The constant factor is trickier to estimate, because it is more arbitrary, for example dependent on tokenization and the precise value of Q, and it also seems more likely to vary wildly across tasks. Because the constant factor does not have inherent meaning, it's most intuitive to first specify a reference model with a certain number of parameters P, generate a probability distribution over the number of samples D required to train the reference model, and then back out the constant factor k from this and the exponent distribution specifically k equals d, p. I chose to use language models as the relevant reference class, because we currently have the clearest experimental evidence in that domain, and because it is plausible to me that a transformative model would be purely or mostly language-based. As discussed above, there are two scaling laws discovered in Kaplan et al. 2020 which contradict one another the compute-optimal scaling law is shallower, exponent of 0.37, compared to the target accuracy scaling law, exponent of 0.74. My expectation is that language models will follow the shallower compute optimal scaling law for the next several doublings but eventually transition into the steeper target accuracy scaling law around the crossover point between the two scaling laws. According to the paper, 
The crossover point occurs at around approximately 1E12 parameters and approximately 1E12 tokens of data, although the precise value is highly sensitive to the precise exponents in the scaling law. I chose P equals 1012 as my reference parameter count, and assumed that the number of samples D required to train a model with 1E12 parameters could be represented as a log-normal distribution with mean 1E12 and a standard deviation of 1.500M. Note that I make the simplifying assumption that each data point is used about once over the course of training that is, I will calculate total training flop as simply the product of the number of data points, the horizon length in seconds of the average data point, and model flop S. While many models today were trained with substantial reuse of data, for example on dozens or hundreds of epochs, I think that this is a reasonable assumption because training with one epoch tends to be the strategy which minimizes training computation, and I expect that researchers will aim to economize heavily on training flop as models get larger. To the extent you disagree with this assumption, you can reflect your beliefs by simply multiplying the value of the number of data points required to train the reference model by the number of epochs you believe will be used. You may want to use another reference point, for example, an RL model such as AlphaStar or OpenAI5. I suggest a few different options for a reference model in this section of the Colab notebook. Different choices tend to shift the median value of the neural network and genome anchor hypotheses by about approximately 100m. This was part 2 of forecasting TAI with biological anchors. Thanks for listening. To help us out with the nonlinear library or to learn more, please visit nonlinear.org.